How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Star Show Podcast, episode 252. I'm sorry if I'm a little quiet, everyone. I just got deafened. That was a thunderclap. That was a thunderous Zeke sync clap. Don't oh, do it, I don't think I've ever done something that powerful. No. I'm quite raspy today, Jake. You are? I feel a little raspy. Oh, what, 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 why is that? Zeke? Why? Well, uh... We, we had birthday celebrations we did. This, this past weekend. Um, obviously, by the time the next episode airs, I will be 26. I'll be joining yes, you. Yes, I will say now, happy birthday, Zeke. Thank you. Because this week is your birthday week, technically. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it would be fair to say this is yeah definitely that. Um, no, it was great. We went out. Um, we went on a, a brewery tour. We did. Organised by my lovely partner. Aww. We got drunk. Yes, we did. I got I got a little drunk. Not yeah, too crazy. you know what? That's probably. Oh, is that the drunkest you've gotten? Um, oh, in a while. In a while. Hmm. Not that he got drunk. Did he I didn't get drunk? But. I didn't get. Did I get drunk at your birthday last year? Not really. I think that's that's the most you've let loose in a while. It's been a while. The the only the only um like caveat is that every now and then at work, Mal would just like shove red wine down my throat, and. <laughs> It gets me hard, and that this is that I am notoriously not great with like eating. Like I can go a long stretch of time working without eating, yes. and I prefer it that way almost. Like I prefer to just get the job done, then go home, and then eat in my own time. So you know, at the at the end of the day, when I get red red wine shoved down my throat, it's not great. Yeah. So I'll say, with the exception of that, in terms of social drinking, you're right. It's probably the most I've gotten involved in a while yes and it was a lot of fun but uh obviously jake we're not here to talk about our uh, mature exposés (laughs) damn uh, here to talk about (laughs) movies and particularly the movie of the week jake do you have any fun film trivia i do from the film of the week for the killer for the killer yeah so it's this is going to be a fascinating film to talk about for so many reasons, but I think the one that the piece of trivia that really stuck out to me, um, and, this, and it's ironic because I think the parallels between this film and maybe some of Finch's earlier career with like the Seven and Fight Club, the more radical films that he made a little younger in life, uh, that he uh, collaborated with Andrew Kevin Walker as a writer on those films. This is the first time since those films that he collaborated with Andrew Kevin Walker again as he uh, wrote this. And I thought this was so interesting because even to tie it back to our podcast, History Zig, we did a Fincher Director's Corner, I believe episode 35 is when we did Fight Club. Yes. And I, I remember that week actually reading the Seven script before watching the movie because I, remember, I think we were told in class, like if you have the opportunity to read Seven before you watch it, absolutely do it yes and uh it was fun it was a lot of fun so i think way back then is when that's all relative to the conversation i think we're going to have again today regarding fincher and and he's a writing collaborator no absolutely it's it's very intriguing to think about um well look there's plenty to talk about but um one thing that always is quite aloof to me is this is actually the second film in a, a four year exclusive deal between David Fincher and Netflix. Yeah, I didn't know that. I did not know that. Um, Obviously, the film that uh, was the predecessor to this one was Mank, Mm. which we did cover on the show all the way back in 2020, and we were lukewarm. That was pre-episode 100. 
Crazy. That is wild to think about. I think 99. Probably a I film remember. that we were highly anticipating given the, the sheer uh, scope of cast, concept, mm. you know, the film behind Citizen Kane. Yeah. And we were left. Well, we weren't disappointed. This, this is the thing, because this is where history sort of bleeds, doesn't it? Because I do remember we were both. We had lots of nice things to say about Mank. Yes. We didn't hate Mank, but I feel like it was one of those films that very it became Green Book esque, where it very quickly, for me, it felt very quickly overrated. As soon as it started getting the accolades and the Oscar yes. noms, that's when it just started feeling weird and like oh, I don't think it earned that. I don't think it's earned this. Um, yeah, so that's a weird one in my memory in terms of mm. our reception of it. The wider reception, I think, the wider general conception is people weren't. People did not think it was one of his best films, by far. No. But it is a tough... I mean, obviously, having such a catalogue of, of really good films, is mm. it the is it the same sort of way as how we felt about Tenant? We went, oh... Yeah. Yeah, that's a good it, way to look at it. You know, it's been a long time since we've said, oh, a Fincher film is not very good. And he has not... He has made films that aren't very good. They're mm. just so rare and scattered <laughs> over decades of a career that yep. we when we come to one that's, you know, fine or seldom, we're a little bit like, oh, that's not what I expected. Mm. Like, you know, it's... But it happens, you know, it does happen. Um, And I think it's an interesting parallel that, uh, much like the character in this new film of his, when something goes wrong, he spirals into a direction that we were just wondering, what, what's the motivation here? What are you, what are you doing? What's going on? He's the protagonist. <laughs> I am the protagonist. <laughs> that is a, I like your Tenet comparison, especially now that this year we're getting both the follow-ups in Oppenheimer and then the killer. Um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be fascinating. Jake, I, mm, yes. you didn't mention your quote. I did not. And I was really struggling to segue <laughs> into it, so I'm going to do it right now. Thank you, Sick. I was going to say... Um, you know, as we enter these last, uh, you know, I guess a group of ten episodes for this show, I would like to say, ten floors, two hundred fifty-two steps in total. Which is a, a quote that Ryan Reynolds says in the film Foolproof, two thousand three. Oh. There you go. And I think I think as he's climbing the steps, he he's recounting two fifty-two over and over. I believe that's a scene as well from it. So. I see. So thank you for helping me with that segue. It was awful. No, that's all right. I was happy to help you out. Jake, have you caught anything else in the last week? I caught a couple things. Not a lot, unfortunately, but yeah, it's okay. We'll have a little dry spells. Come see, come see. Exactly. And I'll, I'll quickly give a shout-out to Glass Onion again. I rewatched Glass Onion with Kirsty the other day because we watched uh, Knives Out a yep. couple of weeks ago. And this is the funny thing about Glass Onion is she actually had already seen like the first half or a good chunk of the film uh, last Christmas. So this is when she was in New Zealand. I was still here. Very sad times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very surprised. I was like, oh, you're watching Glass Onion. And basically what happened is about a third of the way into the film, before the big, juicy sort of midpoint, big twist happens, uh, her uncle says, oh, I'm bored, and turns off the TV. And what uncle says is what is what the family does. <laughs> so she spent the better part of a year not knowing how Glass Onion ended. Or unraveled, so to speak. so strange. It's weird, I know. So I'm really glad we got to watch it together. And the thing I just want to say, and I feel like we did talk about this in our original Glass Onion podcast, but the thing I just want to 
sort of reflect in and I and I will just throw it out there. I don't think she enjoyed it nearly as much as as um as Knives Out. And I think part of that is the flow of the films are so different. Yeah. And I like I said, I swear we we must have talked about this last year when we discussed the film on its own podcast, but I think with the subsequent rewatches, because I've seen this film at least three times now, maybe even four. Um, I'm just trying to think, because I saw it in theaters. I obviously would have watched it again before we did our podcast. I distinctly remember watching it with mum, and that, that might have been a third time, and now I've seen it maybe a fourth time. Mm. Each time I watch the film, this the seams of the puzzle box that is like the, the script and the editing kind of show more and more. Yeah. And I don't think that's a negative thing per se, but it is. I mean, I mean, hey, it's the glass onion. I can see through the structure of it, I guess, as the, the title refers. But I, I just, I'm watching it. Like I said, it doesn't ruin the movie. For, it doesn't ruin the story or the mystery or anything like that. I just feel like I'm seeing through the matrix of what should be a film that really flows. Like, I mean, Knives Out flows tremendously it's, it's seamless exactly it evolves as a film too it like grows mm. and thrives and and i think there's something to glass onion not being so and being really visible in its structure in the way things play out yes and it almost kind of has to be that exact way for the story to make sense in the way that it does but yeah i guess the way i would describe it is you know, seeing a nice big skyscraper building and it's got like reflective panels and you're seeing the sky bounce off of it in the reflection and it's a beautiful, you know, piece of structure or architecture. And Glass Onion, you can see the scaffolding and all of the structural, uh, what's it called? Like the integral beams and mm-hmm. the, uh, how am I forgetting the term for it? The well, load-bearing the, yeah. architecture within that, would probably deter a lot of people, but people like me are almost just fascinated by it that it hasn't deterred them from the film. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making a lot of excuses for for uh, Ryan you Johnson. Are, you are a, <laughs> I would say, a, a softly religious defender of Ryan Johnson. <laughs> That's a good way and, to put it. And um, though there are Ryan Johnson films that I do like, and Knives Out is among those. Yes. And I, I think everyone unanimously thought that film was great mm. i i find that the the satire and the clunkiness i mean you can go back to my glass onion my sure. import on that episode and i just found the the this idea of sort of making fun of plot archetypes and character archetypes right. but actually using them but just cuz you're self aware about them does not mean you're mm. more intellectual than the the product you're delivering and i yep. felt like it just go in. It went too far in Glass sure. Onion. Yeah. Um. And and that sound. I mean, honestly, he kind of does the same thing. In the Last Jedi, with like making fun and poking at the archetypes or like the established law of the franchise, while also still abiding by the laws of said franchise. Exactly. So and he it, does this often. <laughs> and it, to be honest, it's not. It does not just because you're self aware of it. Mm. It's the Rick and Morty effect. Just because you're self aware right. of it doesn't mean it's intellectual smart to comment on it yeah. all the time. Yeah. Um, and you know, look, I like I, I don't acknowledge those Star Wars films' existence, so <laughs> he's he's exonerated for that film. Um, there was Thanks, a lot, Disney, <laughs> yeah. And but for Glass Onion, no, nah, I just didn't get enough at it. I think the so, idea of 
being like, oh, there's a perfect twin sister substitute. And this is kind of silly and hokey, but it's like, you're doing it, though. It's part of your story. Yeah, yeah. So it survives the gunshot with the little the journal in the chest pocket yes. sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know... The, the, the soap opera elements of the story. Yeah, yeah. and there, there were, there's a lot of really fun uh, satire and stuff, you know, in the, in the first film where it's, you know, Christopher Plummer's, like, slitting his own neck, but mm. it's fake, and, and the fake knives and, and that big plot point and, and yeah. having a character that can't see blood unless they throw up. That's like a... There's some really good comedic aspects in it, mm. but it's intriguing and enticing, and you don't actually know who who does it until the end. So it has all of that. It all ties itself together in a neat bow. And I just think the second film, I I like what Johnson does with his actors, how he works with his actors. I think sure. he got good performances out of everyone in that, in that film. Well, even Kirsty was just noting the amount of cameos, you know, the Selena Williams and, um, you know, uh, even Hawks in there as well. And, mm. Um, Yo-Yo Ma and just like she was kind of baffled by it and I'm like I think that's the Ryan Johnson effect is you're right great with actors but also he kind of has this weird pull that you wouldn't expect him to have with just random people all over mm. the world to cameo in his films yeah yeah that's a good good watch is that all you caught in the last week? I caught one other film okay because I did promise last week and I'm, I'm god damn I am I'm sticking to this promise Zeke of the 10 films I have left on my 100 film poster that I will watch one each week until the end of this podcast. There you go, and you did it. I did it, and it's so tough because I want to watch films that are relevant to the ones we're talking about as our main film of the week. And the closest one that I could relate to The Killer was Seven Samurai, which, hey, Seven Samurai, it's an absolute classic, but it's three and a half hours long. I'm like, I just did this. (laughs) I love it. That is really Scott, isn't it? No, 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 no. No, no, this is... um, this is Akira Kurosawa, and he's got several films. Oh, Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. I was thinking The Last Samurai, oh, I which see. is a Ridley Scott film, I'm pretty sure. Oh, I'm now going to check there that. There you go. But Seven Samurai. And that's Tom Cruise, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Also a great film. My boss now always yells at me, have you not seen The Last Samurai, oh, Jake? It's Edward Zwick. Oh, there you go. Who directed Blood Diamond, Love and Other Drugs. Defiance. Oh, he's got some good films in there. Yeah, well, there I quite like Defiance. Nice. Um, Seven Samurai. Yes, it's- Seven Samurai. It's so... Holy cow, this is a beast of a film, and it is three and a half hours, and I've, I've seen very few films that are three and a half hours. I mean, we just did Killers of the Flower mm-hmm. Moon. Um, the Irishman is like a couple minutes longer than this, and then you're getting into your Lord of the Rings extended cuts. And this is just one of those films where you're kind of looking for the meat in it. And what I mean by meat is like where's the fat to trim? And mm. it just doesn't exist in this film. Like, it's just so impeccably paced. Every piece of the story is given the flow and the breath to really explore. And the story is as simple as... It's basically a bug's life. <laughs> there are farmers that are under attack by bandits who are going to steal all their food and their way of life and basically starve them to death. Okay. And they, they have this amount of time. They're not sure how long until they're going to return. And so they reach out to these local samurai... And they, you know, they don't have currency, they don't have food, they don't have anything really to offer these samurai. And yet, it is, I think it's like the virtue aspect of this samurai group that, and, and a lot of people point to this, like, this is like the first, like, team-up movie. It's the, it's the Magnificent Seven. 
<laughs> Basically, yeah. I, think I have a feeling that was exactly what happened. Kurosawa made Seven Samurai, and then I think that they made... The American equivalent is The Magnificent Right, Seven. that makes a lot of like, sense. <laughs> and obviously that was then remade into the, the modern version of Magnificent Seven, but there is a 50s version of that. But I'm gotcha. pretty sure it's like the American... They watched... Someone watched... I, I've got to check Samurai. this now. But yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. Check the year. So Seven Samurai is 1954. For clarification, and it's it's interesting because I was reading that as well. I was like, "Oh, this really was like the first teen." Nineteen sixty. Oh, there you go, there you go. They had a, they had a few years like, to <laughs> to to get onto it, but and yeah. Oh, literally says it. it. Oh, it says it right there. Seven Samurai, the screenplay credited by William Roberts, is a remake, uh, remake in an old west style for Akira Kurosawa's nineteen fifty four. Film, ah, there you go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, that's it. So you take it into like a Japanese samurai era, as opposed to Magnificent Seven, which yeah, like I said, is more of a Western, of course. Um, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's it's one of those films where you're kind of like you're watching through it, and you just kind of don't know. You get sucked into it. You kind of don't know where to rest your analytical brain. You're just kind of in, enticed by these characters and their dynamic and the fact that even though this is, you know, a very serious story and there's, you know, many, many lives at stake, that there's so much humor and comedic moments and these characters sort of laughing and enjoying each other. And it's almost like, it almost feels like a bit of a hangout film at times because Mm. you really are just sort of resting with these characters for literally hours until the fret, you know, makes their way in and the last hour of the film is just this big battle. And what I love about it as well is it's not just like this big battle against hundreds and hundreds of CG bandits. There's 40. And and an hour of the film's runtime is dedicated to them meticulously taking out these 40 people. And I just, I love the... Like, they are are samurai, but it's like... they It's not like one guy's going to take out 40 people. Yeah, There is that element of realism to it where they have to be extremely tactile on how to separate them into smaller groups, how to lead them down certain ways. Okay, we're going to barricade these ends of the of the the I was going to say town, um, the 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 farming the village, yeah. their village. Just the the fact that it has the time to take all of that in and really showcase it all. And um, yeah, I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And even its depiction of violence, which by the end is is very visceral and, and in your face and you've got the rain and it's sort of the dawn time setting. and I mean, the whole film's in black and white, but you get that style all there. But the first kill of the film, I thought so interestingly, was off screen. We see one of the samurai, there's like a hostage situation essentially. Mm. And there's this strange thing of like, oh, we found a samurai who's willing to help. But he, he wants like these two, I can't remember what it was, like two pieces of bread and he wants a haircut. And what? And then you realize it's all part of this game to sort of pretend to be a monk to get close enough to the person, and then like within a swift second, run into the the hut and kill this man. And it's all that whole thing's off screen. I'm like, that's so interesting to have the the patience to do that in the early to mid fifties, yeah. knowing how violent your film will eventually get to show that. Um, I guess the range from start to finish of the runtime. So there's just so many interesting things about this film that I could go on forever, but it is a bonafide classic, and I'm glad I spent the <laughs> the time the time to do it. it Where did you watch it? Oh, I, I, I watched it. You watched it? Okay, <laughs> enough said. 
That's well, how it, it's it's a uh, we're in hard times, Zeke. Yeah. No. Okay. Here's the thing. I legitimately tried to find a copy that I could either rent or order, and other than a Criterion that was going to take several weeks to arrive, I was like, well, this, I'm trying. I try iTunes. You can't rent it. There's no copy of it on YouTube. So I'm like, you got to do what you got to do. Sometimes. Jeremy Hearty. <laughs> That's it. Um, but those are the films I watched in the last week. Zeke, what have you been up to in the last week? Uh, well, look, here you are watching intellectually stimulating films. I watched Vacation Friends. Yay! So, um, <laughs> yes. And Vacation Friends too. Um, nice. So these are films that have come out in the last couple of years starring, um, you know, a, a, a quartet, the old f- oh. quartet. Um, uh, predominantly John Cena. Look, they're adult comedies about two very crazy people, two less crazy people, all meet on holidays and then crash their wedding. They are brain they're brain dead comedies that have got and I really do think and I will say this I thought the first one was fine second one was not good mm. they added Steve Buscemi in there and it, it didn't help oh, um, that's impossible to believe but that, that's a shame um, <laughs> look I don't know what to say about I really do think that the era of the adult comedy is is we won't find a golden age like we had mm. in that early mid aughties. I so think. Are these newer films. These are very new. Twenty twenty one and twenty twenty three. Oh, I see. I haven't um, heard of them. What on earth? And they're nothing more than uh, films that make up the streaming Yeah, the Netflix the, shovelware. Basically. It needs just, one release a week. That would do it. And you know, we've we've had shining lights of comedies. You know, I like earlier this year. I mean, the, the comedic aspects of Dungeons and Dragons was good, but mm. uh, more importantly, the film they did before that, Game Night, was great. And then, like, even Cockblockers was was pretty mm. good. And um, there are, but it's you know, it's those films. And and then on top of that, I watched Old Dads, and it's just it yeah, keeps pushing. Yeah, it just I'm keeps. Sorry, mate. Yeah, Bill Burr. That you know, okay. I'm gonna. I don't have too much to say about vacation friends. I do have more to say about old dads. Okay. Um. Well, I'm. I'm generally curious what you think of old dads. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. With vacation friends, I think they're the kind of films that are trying to compete with stuff like wedding crashes and dodgeball and um, even like meet meet the fockers. Mm. Like these these films, they were just so that aughties period. Which I reckon died with The Hangover. Like, when Todd Phillips' yeah. Hangover came out. And I'm talking the first one because I don't think the second and the third one are very good at all. Sure. But that first one, that's twenty, that's 2009. Mm. Is that the last really good... Like, at least in that period of adult comedies, I feel like that might be it. I mean, we've had, we've had yeah, sporadic Google, pop-ups yeah. since then. You know, we've had the... Right. Um... Obviously, the Edgar Wright stuff, but that's kind of exclusive and doesn't really count in what I'm talking about here. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't um, put Edgar Wright in the same category um, as like a hangover comedy. We've had like serviceable ones in there, predominantly like a Seth Rogen, James Franco, like the This Is the End. But then for the every This Is the End, which are a fine comedy that are funny, mm. there is Sausage Party, and yeah, I'm just looking at the poster right now. <laughs> Haunting. It's the film that has haunted me for the like. It's just horrible. Well, like, okay, to to go on to your point, because I just googled adult comedies and it just came up with a bunch. And the majority of the ones I'm looking at here, so yeah, you got your Forty Year Old Virgin, Super Bad, 
There's something about Mary. That's not. Is that nineties or is that forties? That is nineties. Okay. Well, even going down the list, bridesmaids, knocked up, stepbrothers, wedding crashes. These are all Ortiz films. Borat, the Borat films. Literally, and they're all like 2003 to like 2009. Yeah. Like they're that that period. And I just, I think that that is from, it starts with American Pie and goes all the way to 2009. That decade mm. is just the best decade yeah. for comedies. And it's not an age thing. It's not a, because I, we were children at that time, but I, you know, now watching them, they're just, they hit different because yeah. there was this, Honestly, political correctness has affected that particular type of comedy. Mm. Um, and there's there's probably a, a plethora of other reasons, but they're all money-based at yeah. their core. But it's like, let's go to old dads. Okay, then the formula is, oh, okay, well, we're going to give a comedian creative reigns. He's yeah. known for his political... It just doesn't translate. And mm. I, I, by saying that, I mean that there was no directorial voice in that mm. film and if there was it's probably one that shouldn't direct again because <laughs> to speak to speak plainly there was nothing creative in that film it was simply no. like you said and it's funny because i was watching it and i was like okay well does at least the comedy hit no sure. mm. bill burr burr has zero chemistry with his two male ensemble counterparts. Yeah. There's no flow there. I mean, and I'm talking, you know, let's let, let's dial it back then to the Audis. You've got Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn. They mm. play off each other perfectly. Yeah. Ben Stiller plays off perfectly with uh, a plethora, even Owen yeah. Wilson himself. I mean, Will Ferrell's... Also, even De Niro in, in the Meet the Fucker movies. Fockers. Yeah. Um, or you go Tropic Thunder with Robert yeah. Downey Jr. and Jack Black. You know, the fact that there was so much cross-section with so many of those actors mm. and they all naturally worked with... The, I don't know if they liked each other, but on screen, it worked. Yeah, it definitely um, felt like it watching those films. They and, loved each other, yeah. And then you even the Seth Rogen quadrant of the Jonah Hill, Seth Rogen, the Point Blank, basically, group. Right. They all work perfectly together. Mm. I know they are all friends. Yeah. So that helps. But, you know... I'm not even a huge Superbad fan, but I find that funnier than anything that's churned out in yeah. the last five or six years. And it's, you watch this film, it's like, how does this um, co- comedian have such a, a poor film? And it's poor. Like, yeah. it's really bad. Like There's absolutely zero inventiveness with uh, the camera, with the editing, with any of that. And, and it goes back to just... And I, I think of, like, I haven't seen Central Intelligence, but when I see that poster... Of those two, I'm just like, <laughs> this has to just be a collection of scenes of them just riffing for an hour and a half, Basically. and then that's it. And that that's what Old Dads feels like, except this is sort of injected with this, you know, with Bill Burr's typical comedy, which really only works because of the way he delivers those lines in a stand-up setting. Mm. And when he delivers it through a scripted, sort of slower-paced setting in the film language... It doesn't translate. It just becomes super awkward. And it it's wild, isn't it? Because, you know, then we look at something like King of Staten Island, which still has the comedy aspect to it, but it has yeah. the emotional aspect. And you, you sort of sit there and it's like, well, Bill Burr was on that set. How did he not kind of, like, surely there was you more think he would pick up. soaking up. I mean, like, Judd Apatow, say what you want about him, but it's like, that is definitely one of his more competently directed films. Certainly more than, uh, oh God, what was the other one he did? 
the green screen. Oh, the bubble. The bubble. Holy moly, mother of God. But I'd say, but, I mean... But you're right. Like, why wasn't he... He was on Breaking Bad. And How is he not soaking up, like, the crews around him? And, like, okay, what are the directors? How are they communicating with their actors? How are they communicating with the camera team? And and every director yeah. misfires, but Apatow, we're talking about that that golden age of the Ortiz comedy. Mm. That's him. Yeah, that's him for most. Of, you know, some of the, the the pure genius and irony. He he is really good at it. And mm. I mean, I do think he's elevated by finding. But he helped find some of the greatest actors of that time and and kind of give them that platform. So yeah. which really allowed them all to grow into their own things. Mm. But it's not funny. And to be honest, the hyperbolic storytelling of Bill Burr that we both find very funny on stage yes. is not what the real world's like. And what I thought it was going to be a problem ended up being a problem. You know, these laughably obnoxious people mm-hmm. which aren't realistic at all, which makes his comedy seem even more flat and more lame it felt lame it felt like a lame film yeah i think because um, that's it it's like you look at the stand-up when he's like describing scenarios where he's interacted with like random annoying people and i guess that really there's a part of your brain that i guess submits to the idea of okay well this is a real interaction he's had and maybe there's an exaggeration of when he's like maybe doing the other person's voice in that two-way dialogue there's something about that that's humorous but then when he casts another actor to play that and then he's just playing himself and the other actor plays it kind of semi trying to they're not exaggerate they're trying to play it as like oh i'm a real annoying uh teen who's gonna make a comment about you know oh you should put a band-aid on what i can't even remember the scenario well there's that and then there's the teacher that's like for some reason they have to go to that school for some reason like and she just happens to be this super pretentious person but yeah he, for some reason, has to send his kid to that school because his wife that he loves very much is fixated on this school despite mm. the fact that they have the the chemistry of people that have been divorced for about five years. Like, <laughs> like I found it hilarious that he's like, you know it's bad when a film starts with just expository like, like dialogue in the it's modern day. It's four minutes of him just like creepily smiling throwing the baseball at the kid and it's like yeah and my wife's my really life's great. great she's forcing me to take my kid to this really private school but i just love her and it's like it just at that point i was like what is this film like yeah. and it just got worse as it kept going because <laughs> then they introduced the the millennial yeah. over the top and you're just like man i've seen SNL skits with more intellect and right. irony than, and they have to come up with it with in a week yeah, in advance, exactly. you know. And I just found it exceedingly more frustrating the longer it went on. And and quite simply, it wasn't funny. Yeah. And I think that that's the most important thing. Is I didn't get a single chuckle. the The whole N word car ride. I oh, was yeah. just like, this is just silly. Yeah. Like, it's like okay. And. They really didn't have any chemistry with each other. Mm. Like, there was nothing naturalistic about the flow. And it's like you go back to the the Rogan-Franco sort of stoner comedy stuff, and it's like the back and forth between, like, Rogan and, and Bershnow and, and Jason Siegel, and, and there's just, like, so much back and forth between all of them. Yeah. 
And if it's done right, you know, if the chemistry is all there, then that kind of almost hides not even the imperfection, but just the laziness of the filmmaking around it. Where it's like, okay, well, it doesn't matter because we're all here to see this and, and we're getting a good time and we're laughing. It's the Anchorman and, effect. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, and, Anchorman 2 has the most paper-thin plot on the planet. But <laughs> because they, they're all so talented at going back and forth and, and they've been allowed to have those insane amount of of uh, liberty... Yeah, you it, get the leeway. Yeah. And then uh, the Old Dance doesn't have any leeway. and uh, Yeah. And I hate saying this because like, we love Bill Burr and we want him to make kick-ass films. But I, that's the thing I didn't say when I, I talked about, what, two or three weeks ago when I talked yeah. about this film. That's the thing I wish I had said then that you just said. How did he not soak up... He's been on so many sets yeah, with so many great directors on so and many in, great shows and, and didn't seem to soak any of it up. And in, and, and in all seriousness, it's, it's not an easy job being a director. No. But a lot of our industry has always been... You see, you absorb, you, you know, you identify, you imitate, you innovate. Yeah. And it's like, the reality is you start by just watching films mm. and then you get involved in films. Yeah. And before you know it, you're finding your, your you know, you then go, okay, I'm going to go take that. And, and, and it's like everything we've made has been derivative from something we've seen yeah. or participated in. Um, And it's just odd that it's like... Even as even from learning from like I said like Apatow where it's mm. like he's done more hits than misses. That's a man who knows how to write at least situational comedies, yeah, and knows when his actors can ad lib, and then when his actors like letting the uh the in the forty year old version letting that scene play out when Steve Carell's getting his um the chest the chest removal, removal yeah. and allowing that to just breathe naturally. He yep. knew that his actors were going to do that. And yeah. what he got out of it is the highlight of that film. That's um, a big one. Just don't don't call cut. Just wait a minute before you call cut. Yeah. It's a big one. And it, Comedy and drama. The whole idea of Bill Burb just actively trying to talk back to the people that he talks about in his stand-up shows is not funny. The idea is that I, what makes I find his stand-up funny is we go, yeah, I, I have those crazy thoughts sometimes too, and it's funny. Yeah. It's, it's almost the fact that we can't visualize beyond just Bill by himself explaining the scenario that makes our imaginations run wild yeah. and like associate with the story. But when we see it, like, okay, here's Bill Burr and here's this stereotypical character that he's invented in the script, then that dissonance is gone and it's like, oh, this doesn't work. This isn't funny anymore. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's like the one of the worst stories it just makes no sense there, there kind just, of is no story things just happen He's the kid he wants the kid to get into a good preschool so he's got to be nice to the principal but like but then she's a bitch so he doesn't want to be nice to her. <laughs> was that the story oh, and then he gets dumped and then he rides like a the scooter and then he, oh, and he sees the other the other kid be born, and that's how the movie ends. Gosh, it's a shame. It's a shame. There you go. We had a feeling as well. We we, we, we did. Yeah. We did. Well, that's, that's okay. all I've caught in the last week. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Sam. I'm hoping. Well, actually, I say that I watched episode two of Invincible, oh, nice. um, which was good, and I've continued to watch Gen V, which is fine. oh, I don't think you mentioned Gen. Oh, v I haven't yet. mentioned Gen no. V. No. I really want to watch this. Four, obviously, uh, it's the the boys spin-off. 
well, yeah, the boys spin off, but apparently is going to be linked into the next season. Okay. So the finale of Gen V apparently the, the leads the into boys. Yeah, four. the boys is like a couple of days after that. Oh, okay. So I don't know what happens at the end of, of this season of Gen V. I think it's fine. Um, okay. I'm finding, and maybe I'm just a little aloof on. I'm struggling with Gen V because, honestly, that idea of Homelander is such a an interesting one, and the and there's the cultural aspect to it, and it is a little shame because I I think the first season of The Boys is so good because mm. of the mystery aspect, and I'm finding now with this obviously this college, college uh, version of it version yeah. I would have almost liked it to be more college drama for longer before all of the mystery stuff kicked off. Oh, okay. I see what you but mean. it kicks off immediately at the end of the first episode. And I'm like sitting there going, oh, so it's another, it's basically just season one of the boys, but I feel like that's, it's weaker. At least at this point, it doesn't feel as intriguing as okay. this whole idea of, because the whole thing, and if you haven't watched the boys, watch it, it is really good. But the whole thing in the end, like the midpoint of season one is we find out the babies are chemically induced right. to get superhero powers. They're not like... They're not born with the abilities. They're not born with the abilities yep. or there's no like eth- ethereal God presence. It's all corporate yep. stuff. And there's that satire aspect which makes the boys very entertaining. And, and I do think that the characters have evolved with the show and, and the stakes have been raised on that show. Mm. So it's weird then going to this show that's co-currently set in parallel and we go back to, like, a, a mystery about certain, like, things called... This thing called The Woods. And you get revealed mm-hmm. very quickly what The Woods is. Okay. Um, and I'm just sort of like... Does it sort of give you that perspective? Because I'm thinking about... It's been a while since I've seen The Boys. And I, I binged through it like crazy those first three seasons. But... Because I know there's a lot of... Like you said, the, the unraveling conspiracies... Um, you know, with the, with the corporation and, yeah. and this being unveiled and this being revealed, does it does this new show does Gen V sort of recontextualize? What does the public actually know about how plain evil the Seven are? It's kind of and and I think that you're you're kind of getting where I'm going here with this because what's annoying mm. and it's already kind of frustrating me a little is they have things like at this university. So our main character. Um, had a really tough upbringing because she discovered her powers very early on. Yeah. Um, and it led to dire sort of consequences for people she loved. Very standard hero stuff. <laughs> it's not really a spoiler. It's in the first five minutes. Sure. But what's important is then she gets this scholarship to go to this uni and she desperately needs to stay on the, on the straight and narrow. Otherwise she ends up going to somewhere that she doesn't want to basically. Right. Okay. Um, that's all in the first 15 minutes. So it's sure. not really a, a, a spoiler, but what I find annoying is there's this self-awareness that a lot of them know that they're... Obviously, it's been... I think it was leaked in an early season that Compound V is like this drug that induces... Like, has made I them all... I definitely remember in the main show that that's a plot point. Yes. It's unva- I think it's the, the world season finds two. out. Yeah. Um, finds out that it's a chemical alteration. But what's kind of interesting is then they've got things like, like you said, like... Vought is so clearly evil at this point. It almost feels like the the coming out party is... They're well out at this point. And it's weird because it's like the school is dependent on... coming out party. (laughs) 
I love the, it. <laughs> the school is dependent on this ranking system, and this yeah. arbitrary ranking system that very quickly you're sort of a little intrigued. You're like, oh, so it's like the Hunger Games. You know, there's like mm. the top, the district ones and the lower. Um, but the ranking system is kind of arbitrary. It gets made up, basically. Yeah. Okay. And they they say, well, we just changed the rankings basically on popularity and, and mm. it's it's got these very weird rudimentary but it makes no sense. It's like how Letterboxd uh they rank their films based on quote unquote popularity. Cause, we well, just don't know. Yeah, because of course <laughs> kidding. the the popular kid, the number one kid in in the first episode, his superhero name's Golden Boy and you're just like Golden Okay, Boy. well there's no subtext there, which is fine. Let's let's keep moving forward. But then in, it's interesting as the the show unfolds and our main character moves up the mm. rankings because she gains a bit of popularity, and other characters around them are like annoyed that she rises so quickly, right. but at the same time, everyone knows it's kind of this arbitrary system that doesn't really mean anything, right? And it's just it's weird Metaphor because for high school, I don't know. Maybe mm. I don't know. I just think that the conf- they try and create conflict sometimes. And- it just, I thought that, oh, angsty teens with powers that they don't fully comprehend would be quite interesting, and I've right. found it kind of cringe, to be honest. Oh, okay. <laughs> hasn't done it oh, for I me. Oh, I really want to watch this, because I'm so curious. I yeah, don't know. I, if it is cringe-fest or not. Because I, I think, from what I understand, sort of to, to, to answer the question that I pose in terms of, like, the recontextualization of how evil Vought is, yeah. you're kind of just like, ugh, like... It should just be obvious by now. Like, can we just move on with the narrative? Which is a little MCU-esque. Because not that yeah. I've seen a Marvel film in a few years, but I was like, how are they still talking about the snap? That movie came out like five years ago. Yeah. And this, the characters are still like, I'm re- re- I'm reeling but from the snap. The good thing about the boys' show is it's shifted. <laughs> it's no longer Vorder's evil. It's how are we going to beat Homelander? Like, that's the sure. shift. Yes, okay. It's no longer... Homelander is no longer Vought. Homelander's his own... He's the island within Vought. Right. And that's that whole thing between him and um, Jean-Car Esposito. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Esposito. Yeah. Gus's character. Yeah. Gus. He's <laughs> always been Gus. Esposito is... Uh, Espo- yeah. Is the recently... Okay. It was... Esposito. It, well, that, yeah. Well, this is the weird thing, because this actually all came out in Better Call Saul Blu-ray commentaries for some reason, is it was Giancarlo Esposito, and then randomly he decided he would rather be called Giancarlo Esposito. And there was a whole thing of, um, oh, like, you mispronounced his name. No, 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 he's asked me to pronounce it that way. And okay. There's a whole thing at the moment well, with that. Well, Esposito, yeah. it's, you know, that's that whole thing. He's the Vought representation and, and Homelanders himself. But in this, it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. I've found that it's the whole plot is... Oh, did you know Vot's doing evil things to people? Mm-hmm. And you're like, really? Like, I <laughs> had no like, idea. Like, we all. The funny thing is, I just find it interesting this the psychological aspect of 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 Homelander and he's creating this countercultural movement, and that's really interesting in the boys' show. Yeah. Meanwhile, you've got all the drama occurring within that group, the band. Yep. Um. And Robbie Robertson. Yeah. Well, he well. <laughs> How good is that when he actually wears? He the does last wear horse a last shirt. horse shirt in season um, three, I think. Yeah, <laughs> and it's great. Um, but yeah, I I honestly thought it'd be interesting to look more at the 
cultural impact that these young people and then there's some generational um superheroes yeah there's actually a lot of interesting concepts but it feels like the show is on 200 kilometers an hour and is not allowing any time Damn. to explore these things like yeah, that sucks as you watch the first episode you kind of get what i mean you kind of in previous years in previous seasons mm. in early seasons of the boys think about how long things took like yeah What's his What's his name? Mister Invisible or whatever the 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 first yeah the invisible they, hero person. the invisible yeah um seven guy that's like the first three episodes it yeah. almost had like that whole idea of introducing um you know Carl Urban's character and then introducing Frenchie and and it's it feels very small it's mm. like oh my god we've got one of the seven and it's they have to come up with such a creative way to kill him yes and that's brilliant mm. um. Whereas this film, uh, this this series feels like it's already in like season three. Like we're in right, we're like in overdrive, fast forwarding for the story. Because I feel like they're trying to link it into season was it four of the boys? Yeah, that would that and that annoys me because I would much rather yeah. have two show this show move at a snail's pace, or we get two seasons of this show before we get season four of the boys. Yeah, that you know what it's a shame, but that it makes perfect sense what you're saying in terms of they they want it to be this concurrent show that's matching the pace of the original, but in turn it it's kind of neg- it's neglected its own the necessity for its own show to pace itself appropriately because there's a lot in there that's really interesting how does this work from a generational family point of view where um there's a father-son pairing and mm. and the father clearly knows vort's evil yep. but it's been that that generational corruption aspect that's really interesting let's mm. let's have a look at that a little bit more no, now nah, we're Dad, gonna you're wrong we're gonna They're zap awesome. through that or these characters that have got um there's a character who is basically um really strong and invincible but switches genders, and oh, it's that's like, cool. I like and that. it's really cool because obviously they're they're a, of um, an Asian, an Oriental background, and there's the cultural clash with the um, being gender fluid, basically yeah. as a yeah. character. Really interesting. But we're gonna zip through it because it's like, <sighs> and I'm sitting there there's at episode four, through, yeah. and it's like we've had to have everyone's uh, conflict introduced super mm-hmm. early on because they want some of it to basically be addressed. One of the characters, she gets really small, but she can only do it by throwing up. Right. So she has to make herself throw it's up. Like Anadiyama like, is lying. It's like the worst <laughs> superpower ever, and it's like everyone thinks she's like... It's like that mental weight that comes with that, and it's yeah. just really frustrating because I'm sitting there going like, man, I would have liked this show to have a whole season of let me get into the culture of Vought before we introduce Vought being evil. Yeah, I'm just going to check quickly, Gen V comic book, because obviously The Boys is based on the original yeah. source material. I'm wondering if Gen V is kind of like Prime's own original creation. It's I'm guessing it is. Is Gen V in the comics uh, serving as a spin-off based on the... I don't think it is. I think, I think that this is like their original creation as opposed to having the comic book to base the story on. That makes a lot of sense. Is, there, like, is there a Game of Thrones-esque thing going on there? I guess there like is. like the House of, of Dragons situation. Right. Or just the fact that by the end of the show, it's their own writing team. Like, they have no source yeah. material. I, yeah, I see. There could there's be enough, some. but like it still kind of fits into the world. It's just a sure. shame it feels like it's on overdrive and it feels like it's going to leave me with a... Just... I'm 
kind of bored or I'm like, oh, or sucks, I'm not yeah. getting, cause and boredom I think comes from not being stimulated or intrigued by the characters. And that's yeah. because the characters are on 200 kilometers an hour and you're giving me no dimensions. They've all got tragic backstories, yeah. but they reveal it on one night out together. And you're like, this would have like, where did the, the pacing go? Yeah. Like, I mean, we watch a, in the first episode of The Boys, we watch five minutes of these two people hanging out with each other before one of them gets eviscerated. <laughs> and it's such an interesting... That's still one of the greatest, like... I would say it's, like, top 20 television moments of all time. It's so good. Because it baits you in. The, yeah. Oh, my God. And it's so, like, horrific. Because, like, if that happens in season two, you're like, oh, huh, okay. But that happened. You have no idea what the show is yet. Yeah. At that point. It's tone <laughs> setter. Happened. Like yeah. you said, it's that tone setter. Um, whereas, yeah, like in this one, it's like nudity is is still in that comedic kind of immature teenage sense, which sure. the boys is, that's kind of what the boys is all about. And I don't know. There's just not a lot of, right now I'm not, I'm hoping there's a hook and I'm hoping I'm going to get to mm. it, but I'm four episodes in and it's a 10 episode. I think it's eight episodes. Yeah. So. That's concerning to me. Mm, I, I even feel like things are going too quick and you're not allowing me any time to actually get to know these characters. Their, yep. their character dynamics are their angsty teenagers with tragic backstories right now. That's all I've got. Or mm. these ones that have got these one note thing. Oh, they're gender fluid with a tough family, but we're not going to allow any of that exploration. Like yep. the parent reveals are so, yeah. So I, but hey, give it a watch. Well, I think you need to. You're gonna have to watch it. I think anyway for season four. For yeah. The boys. Look, well, okay. I'll. I promise to watch Gen V, watch the season, and then next week we'll have a, I guess, some more in depth, maybe spoilerish discussion about yeah, Gen V because I. The, this has really intrigued me. What you've said about it. So there you go. Very curious indeed. Well, Jake, I don't think we have too many career updates, do we? Um, I don't think so. But I would quickly shout out. While we're in this portion of the podcast, that the SAG after strike is all but finished officially. We sort of didn't talk about the writer strike when that finished, God, like a month ago or so. And yeah. I, I, I think part of the reason I didn't really like think we needed to talk about it too much was because I just assumed the actor strike would end like within the week of that mm. and it ended up going on for far longer. I think the strike ended up being 118 days, which is the longer actor strike. Longest acting strike ever in the history of Hollywood. Um, yeah, so I can quickly read off some of the... Uh, this is the frustrating thing because they haven't released the full terms and conditions of the new contract. I think it's actually... They said Monday morning, which for us would be like now, Monday night yeah. recording time. Tuesday morning at the, the latest. Like exactly. Early Tuesday morning. So within the next couple of hours, you probably will be able to sit down and actually read the proper contracts. But we have a general gist of what the actors have won in their contract. Um, so I'll go through this quickly and, and what you think is maybe a win and maybe not so much a win for how long they were on strike for. Sure. Uh, so let's see. SAG after his national board. This is IndieWire, by the way. On November 10, approved the tentative new three-year TV theatrical contract agreed upon this week between the Guild's negotiating committee and the AMPTP. And the Guild have now released details about the contract, which will cost the studios about $1.11 billion per year with these new changes uh, and pay increases, so to speak. Uh, actors will now get raises to minimum wages of 7% in the first year. They'll have AI protections that require consent for performers getting digital scans on each film. So I'm guessing what the win there is that 
they can't just get scanned once and then put on every single film ever made from that studio, you know, forever and ever. I think each film has to get, like, cleared. Mm. If you get scanned as a background actor, it sounds like they can't just use it for different films. They'd have to get cleared each time. And I don't know if there's financial incentives to that as well. Um, let's see here. There is also the requirement that the studios must get consent from the estate if an actor has died, which is weird because I kind of assume that was already the case. I guess that's in relation to this new scanning mm. AI technology they're referring to. Uh, there's also going to now be a streaming participation bonus that's estimated worth $40 million per year from, say, like, uh, the combined Netflix, Amazon, like, all of these streaming uh, studios, uh, which gives added residuals for streaming shows and movies re- released through streaming. Uh, other gains include higher caps for the pension and health plans, guardrails around self-taped auditions. I don't know exactly what that means. Higher compensation for background performers, makeup and hairstyling requirements for performers of diverse hair and skin types, which is quite interesting. A requirement for intimacy coordinators. Again, how was that not already a thing? Yeah, I I guess maybe it was never like an absolute necessity. Is that intimacy coordinators like having someone there to coordinate intimate scenes? Yes. Okay. I'm guessing that just wasn't a requirement in the past. I suppose it wouldn't be. Yeah. Blocking really. Pretty much. And I I guess there's the um. Oh God, we we never really got well. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's a weird. That's an interesting job. That's an interesting. <laughs> that's all I got to say about that. Well, I I think that's interesting having a a person. Yeah, who has that job? I love Guru. Like legit. <laughs> I I'm intrigued. Like I understand this. I guess the per- there clearly must be a a pertinent purpose for it. Mm. Um, I'm just more intrigued as to. I guess it's just like more. I guess like I guess a lot of directors probably don't know the like. The, the language they use for like intimate scenes as well as these people maybe whose entire job is like communication like intimate communications and that is very astutely put Jake I, I don't know Zeke <laughs> finally there is also new language for motion capture performances which is great and much more like I said the full contract summer will be up very soon um so I'll hmm they all seem like wins to me there's a lot of wins in there a couple of like Eyebrow raises in the... Okay, that's interesting. But obviously, we've never... To be honest, we've never been on a set that had an intimate... I mean, I've only been involved in one intimate scene film. Right. And everyone kind of knew each other, so it was... And there wasn't a huge crew, so mm-hmm. it never felt like... Yeah, we needed... But I understand if yeah. there was a crew of 30 or 40 people, perhaps having someone there whose job is to moderate not just moderate the scene in con- consultation with the director yeah. but also i guess moderate the behavior yeah just how to how to look like you're in love <laughs> yeah. i think i think the thing that just threw me off but like you said is i guess it never was a requirement so yeah i never really thought about that but yeah i think the ones that stick out to me i'm a little worried all right well let's start off with the whole because a big part of this strike, I think even more so than the AI situation, was the residuals from streaming. Yeah, $40 million doesn't seem like a lot. It's not a lot. And I think that over the next couple of days, I mean, people are going to start to do the math and be like, this is nothing. Because I was doing some reading, and I think initially SAG were asking for 
I believe, like, some sort of 2% revenue cut of what the streamers were making, I guess, in any given uh, period, which I think would have equated to about a billion dollars. That went down to 1%, as in 500 million, and now the final result here is a very vague, quote, streaming participation bonus that is only worth 40 million. You're right. Across 165,000, like, performing working actors... And sure, not all of them are going to be in a Netflix show in the next year, sure. But you do the math, you're right. That's nothing. Yeah. Like, we're kind of back in the, the pennies and cents and dollars, sort of. Let's do the, let's do the quick math let's, on let's this. Let's do some quick math. So, 165,000 SAG members. Okay. Sharing $40 million in Let's bonus. Make sure I get the right amount of zeros here. Yes. There we go. <laughs> let's figure out the, uh, the division here. Oh, no. What's the map? Let's play. Let's play higher or lower, Jake. Um, <laughs> how like, much do I'm you gonna, think that is? Per I'm going to start at a hundred dollars per person. Higher. Oh, it is higher than that. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, two fifty. Lower. Two hundred. High. Two ten. Higher. Two fifteen. Two hundred and forty-two dollars and forty-two dollars. That is two hundred and forty dollars. Nah, I imagine that's U.S. dollars. Let's, sure. Okay, so. So if maybe five hundred Aussie, let's benefit of the doubt. Yeah, like imagine being in Stranger Things, and you get a five hundred dollar check, being like, "Thank you." <laughs> so to put that in perspective, oh, Jake, no. in Australian dollars, because we are predominantly Australian podcast, Indeed. that is three hundred and eighty dollars a year more. It was really well. In Australia, three hundred eighty dollars does not get you one week one week's rent. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, Even if you're room sharing, you're probably still not. And what's uh, the average? You need twenty seven thousand dollars a year to qualify for basic living. Um, um, for like healthcare, healthcare and stuff. over there in the US, twenty seven thousand, I think it was. US. Yeah, and to be fair, where does it say it? Higher caps for the pension and health plan. So there are things in there to, I guess, negate that number a little bit. But you're right; it's like. How is this helping any? This I think people are going to realize in the next couple of days. This is a horrible loss for the SAG members. Hundred, hundred, what did you say? Hundred and thirty days or something like that. Hundred, I think one hundred eighteen. Hundred and eighteen divided by two hundred. Well, two forty two divided by one hundred eighteen. That's like less than two dollars a day. <laughs> That's what they got. <laughs> less than two dollars a day. Uh, well, okay. Look, if if we're being Fair. We should probably divide it by the one point eleven billion dollars uh, okay. across the board in terms of wage increases and health benefits and things like that. So it, uh, slightly more than two dollars, thankfully. Yeah, but <laughs> as you as you've said, you've just talked about we went from a billion to forty million. So yes, correct. that's the that is the sheer difference mm. um, in which is huge. Um, and to be honest, is probably I reckon the biggest problem now. Like I said, the AI stuff's that's good. At least maybe then they'll pay people for their AI likeness mm. to use them in films, so people will get a subtle revenue from that. Hopefully, um, yes. So the idea is like we CGI face Jake for oh yeah um, a film, Terminator and then, Ten. You know, you got paid a thousand dollars for that that in one film. Maybe you're getting a hundred bucks to be in another film, another mm. hundred bucks to be in another film because you're not actually there. I actually don't mind that system at all. Um, if that is that how is it like works. a smaller cut, yeah, I'm hoping it's. Seen, this is the thing: the language that I've read with the AI is it's more just like permission based. 
it doesn't specify money, which I'm quite worried about. Now, here's another article I pulled up now that we're on this. Justine Bateman criticizes SAG after a deal over AI. Actors should only eradicate if they don't want to work anymore. Now, it should be worth noting that even though the strike is over, the SAG members do have to eradicate the deal in, I think, a couple of days. So there is a small chance that enough of them aren't happy with the residual bonus uh, or the streaming bonus are not happy with where AI is sitting at the moment and all vote, no, we want to keep striking. I don't think that's going to happen. I think everyone just wants to go back to work at this point. But I, there are those sort of... This language is still way too vague mm. with AI. Like, I don't think we've done enough protections. And, and what I've read, again, we don't have specifics, is that the AI response is more thorough than the writers got and the directors got. Of course, the directors never even went on strike. They got, they just signed the first thing they got. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that people... Another quote I'll read here. I'll be taking the actual deal document, not the summary that SAG is planning to release, and explaining the violating AI permissions the AMPTP will have over you. I'm very disappointed at the SAG leadership and committee. They did not take my guidance on the AI issues. So... I'm wondering, it is enticing, and I'm wondering if this is more, like you said, like we're kind of talking here about how do we incorporate AI into film without screwing over actors and background actors and making sure everyone still gets a piece of the pie in the sense that, like you said, what if they just get a smaller fee than the original fee if their likeness is reproduced in other films? They still get like 100 bucks per film. Just as an example, you're right. Yeah. I don't mind that solution at all, and I have a feeling that maybe what Justine Bateman is talking about is we need to go further and, and eradicate AI at all, which I, I'm i kind of with you. It's like you kind of have to well, work with it. To be honest... There's no going away. Yeah. you got to embrace technology if technology is available. It's no different to any of the other things that have occurred all over the years. Mm. Um, and quite frankly, AI for the micro-budget filmmaker is, is a blessing. Mm. Um, it is going to help us cut out well, allow us to become masters of our own sort of destiny a little bit more. And I do say this, that, that there are parts where, you know, we can be cautious and weary and we don't want to leave people out of jobs. But at the same time, mm-hmm. if I can go and make a film, uh, a $50,000 film for 10, right. Because I've, I've cut out all of the visual effects, uh, or I've, I've shot smart or I've cut, you know, like you said, right. purchase someone's AI likeness rather than getting a physical body on set. Yeah, and then paying them three or four times the amount. Um, then I think that's great because that will mm. be better for film collectively as a whole um, in the long run of things um, because it allows people in, in more disadvantaged places mm. to be more creative. Um, it, yeah, it's interesting because like, my, like, guttural reaction is to, like, oppose that, but you are right. There are a lot of people that do, they will benefit from this and not even necessarily out of greed, like the studios are doing it for, but out of necessity where people like us, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of our time and money to create things. Mm. And if this is sort of the thing that breaks the barrier between being able to do it and just not being able to do it, then... There's a lot of people that are going to be very happy about that. And and it might even, like you say, it might unleash a whole new wave of filmmakers that would have never otherwise have been recognized and given other opportunities. But then that goes into the thing of, okay, well, are any actors losing or any crew people 
who lose potentially lose their jobs to AI, are they losing out opportunities as well? It is. This is a deep rabbit hole. Yeah, it's like on them. It's one of them debates in English class where it is. You can do the for <laughs> or against, and you probably got fair arguments for both. I remember being annoyed in I think the fourth or fifth grade. I was in the debate class and I got I had to defend books over movies or I had to debate why books were better than movies, which I hated. <laughs> but no, sorry, no. I think it was the other way around. I think I had to defend movies over books. And I think I was in this period of my life where like, oh well books are more you know, books are more artistic than movies and I would take But that. I made some great I remember making really great arguments. I think my I actually won the debate. Christmas is a commercial ripoff. I did that in year seven. And I was on the side of <laughs> That's awesome. I was on the side it wasn't uh, uh, a commercial ripoff. So I was on the <laughs> capitalism. That would be so funny. I love it. I thought uh, you were gonna go more the route of like um No, like, I was on the team that had Christmas to be Christmas like, is special. Yeah, I was like, it's special. It's special because we get to buy each other everything. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I would yeah. love to see that. It was pretty great. I used to... I actually that's reckon... Hilarious. One of the biggest parts of... Biggest confidence builders was my year seven teacher and his advocate, like, nature to push public speaking. Mm. And he made every kid get up there. If a kid cried, he went, he's staying up there. Mm. Pushed everything every kid yeah. and it was like great because it meant every kid felt confident i've never like gotten nothing but an a for a speech since Aww, then so excellent there you go props to that <laughs> tangent aside it is time for us to move into a film of the week jake what are we watching this week in the show zeke we're watching the killer i find music a useful distraction a focus tool keeps the inner voice from wandering. After a fateful near-miss, an assassin battles his employers and himself on an international manhunt he insists isn't personal. Hmm. Okay. The killer. The killer. Um, when do we start with this? Um, I really like Michael Fassbender. I like... He's a nice guy. You know what this film really <laughs> made you? Know, honestly, I was watching this film, and I don't know if you've seen this film, but okay. the first film that sprung to mind, another Fassbender film, um, was Shame. Steve McQueen and oh, Shame. Okay. Um, and that was a film, obviously, pulls no punches. That's about a film that, uh, about a guy who's like addicted to sex, and, mm. and there's a lot of uncomfortableness in that film. And this film has some uncomfortableness in it, sure. too, for sure. Um and then I thought about this, and then I thought about the first John Wick and how... Oh, yeah. Um, that was sort of a shame and, and John Wick, and I was like, that, that's basically the... F and then, of course, I thought about Fight Club. Mm. And 
I find all three of those films more interesting than the film I just watched. <laughs> um, it's tough. I think it's tough with this film because I actually really... F- I, I think I was talking to my colleague today who does not like this film at all. Okay. Hated it. Interesting. And I Yeah, it's kind of it's hit that Netflix buzz where like everyone my my mum had saw this before I had even seen it. Like it's just it's just everyone that sees it pop on Netflix, it clicks. So it's a lot of people watching it. Yeah. And I don't I don't know if it is just everyone knows it is the David Fincher film or if it's just like, oh, interesting new action film out on Netflix. I think Fastbend is a, a pool. Sure. Too. That's I true. think that there's enough people that like Michael Fassbender. Um and the and to be honest, you know, you hear something about an assassin. There is an intriguing aspect to there. There's been a lot of good assassin films out. Like I said, you know, John mm. Wick's this fun sort of oh mystic law vibe and yep. and intriguing poppy and action hero, poppy and... action stuff. And you know, there's been a ton from all kinds of different people. You know, the Chris Hemsworth films, the Extraction mm. films, and all that yep. stuff. Like, um, but man, if this film, if you're not on board in the first fifteen minutes of this film. You're not really going to get on board after it, I don't think. Yeah, I think for me, and I've sort of vocalized this a bit over the last few days because I'm I'm glad I did watch it a couple of days ago. I had a little time to digest. And first off, the the we've got the Smiths back in towns. <laughs> I'm getting more Google searches than when it was in 500 Days of Summer. And <laughs> you're listening to the Smiths, but I think the thing is with this film, I kind of I get it. I get everything it's doing. At least I think I do. And I kind of had that leeway of going in, reading, ha- having read a couple of jokey reviews about it, where it was like, oh, this is Fincher making fun of himself. This is almost like a satirical action film. So I kind of had that, even though I think that's super, super subtle, I kind of, I do see it in there to an yeah. extent. But, and and that was it. I was sort of watching it from the very first few minutes, and I do think the first 20 minutes or so is the best part of the film. And it kind of gets, like I said, I get what it's doing. I just didn't find it necessarily interesting as it, as the events unfolded, as the revenge story I was, ticks on. I was on board until Florida. Oh, okay. I think I lasted a lot longer. There was enough intrigue. I think the, the moment I stopped, I started to go a little bit more on autopilot was after... Spoilers. Yeah. Um, after Fassbender kills the the cab driver. Right. Because that to me was the the moment of oh, this is what kind of character he is. Mm. There's no remorse or, or empathy. I do think the first twenty minutes are actually really good. Mm. Um, because they go through the, the basically this this pace of how an assassin has to wait for his target, and yep. we and he milks it, and we see everything from trying to lower his heart rate through yoga. Um, Well, just the patience and the the sleep deprivation that occurred. Even the way it's shot, you do get that feeling as the light hits in of like, oh, wow, like you feel that exhaustion that he's going through and he's got the, you know, the super cool, suave monologue and he's revealing his morals and there is no such thing as karma or luck or justice, in other words, he says. And like it's, it's building that, character the mystique behind this cool character and i think for me like i said i do get it because the journey that he sort of undergoes once he you know the failed attempt he sort of spirals he unravels he becomes someone that becomes much less cautious 
much less calculated as the film goes on. When he kills the cab driver, my thing is, oh, well, that, that wasn't very smart, was it? Like, it's a cool little visual when he leaves him under the, the I think, the bridge there. But as the events play out, it's like, oh, he's, he's becoming more unraveled and less calculated. And it's all, I think that's where the satire is meant to come in. Mm. It's like, this character's not as cool as he thinks he is. And we're sort of meant to be almost laughing at him, I think. But, and then you got the whole stylism that David Finch is known for that kind of masks mm. a lot of that. But, like I said, it's like, okay, I get that. I'm still kind of bored. <laughs> it is interesting, isn't it? Because there's, you know, it really is a deconstruction of a character that thinks he's, like, the coolest thing on the planet. Mm. And then it is kind of, the, the tone is set when he, after all 20 minutes of, 15, 20 minutes of, I'm methodically waiting for my prey to immediately mess that up. Yeah. There is a sense of, I mean, when he kills the cab driver, what I find interesting about that scene is I still think there's methodology to most, like, the way he kills the cab driver. Like, I still think he's in control at that point because, you know, he kills him under the underpass and his car was parked right next to it. Like, he was Mm. ready to, like, it was methodically thought out that way. But, um, like you said, by the time he gets to Florida and he's in this absolute scrap of a fight yeah because he doesn't check his corners it's it's interesting because yeah that he doesn't feel like a professional doesn't no. he? he really slowly deconstructs it but i agree i'm kind of i kind of walked away from the film and went oh i mean there were really good sequences in there but i honestly i can tell you i, I don't actually know the point of this film mm. apart from where deconstructing uh, I guess masculine identity and toxicity, maybe. I definitely think there's an element of that in there, and and I do. For Archetypes? me, I think it's. I feel like the film almost sort of purposely doesn't go down that route, and and I notice that when you know he has this sort of partner or girlfriend or whoever is who's nearly killed. And the, the film the spend device. the film spends as little time as possible establishing their relationship. It almost just feels like it needs to for the sake of needing to because genre conventions and then moves on. And I don't think that's Fincher. I I'm sure it's all. I don't think that's him being sort of not good at storytelling. I think that's him very intentionally doing that. I think you're meant to be sort of removed and almost this idea of like I don't know the point of what he's doing or what the story is. I feel like that's almost intentional. And for me, I think the only way I could really um, parallel it is to David Finch's own career. Because that's what I was thinking the whole time. Is okay, well, he's the star. He's cold. He's calculating. And you think about Finch's very methodical camera work and the preciseness of his direction in Social Network and Gone Girl mm. and all these films, the you know, 70 takes and all of that. And then when he messes up, i.e. Mank, question mark, that's when he starts to spiral into something that's a little more rogue, like Fight Club, like Seven, these dirtier, grittier films. It's almost like a filmmaker who made a mistake and is now reverting to what made him cool in the first place. Was so that like his like his Alien Resurrection time? <laughs> he did that, didn't he? He did Alien 3. He did Resurrect- Alien 3, yeah. yeah. I, still haven't, I haven't seen the second Aliens, believe it or not. Neither have I. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. But I know that those films are hated. 
Oh, yeah, no, he, he got, and I understand he was, like, throwing a wrench with Alien 3 and studio meddling, blah, 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 blah. I get all that, but... But I get what you mean, like, there's, like, that that, that fight-back film, almost. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's the counter... It's, like, his counterpunch. Well, yeah, and it's, like, you can almost see it as, like, the, the all the targets that he's sort of... He's climbing up the ladder of this big, sort of, uh, globalist ladder of, of contacts that have all somewhat involved in this, like, hitman world and who've ordered the hit on him and, and his partner or whatever. Again, like, I don't know what you would even call her. Mm. <laughs> it's but so vague what, who she is. But what it is, is is that it's that, like you said, it's that deconstruction of something we romanticise in mm. cinema more than anything. It's that, almost that meta uh, messaging in right. there where it's, we, we romanticise the assassin yeah, lifestyle, the anti-hero, and I mean the irony. Come, I mean, we're talking to the man from Assassin's Creed here. <laughs> no, uh, um, never thought I'd reference that on the show. Oh, but nice, well done. Um, it is interesting because it is that that world. And I was sitting here, it's like, oh, I get feel a little bit of John Wick, and all I'm seeing in the back of my head is, oh, we really wish I watched the original John Wick because what does that do? It makes the assassin hitman world cool, you yeah. know. There's these coins that no one really knows what they're about. and, and The, the currency yeah. doesn't make any sense with those coins, but they're cool. Yeah, yeah. I, and it is. It's that because it's cool, basically, mentality. And it is the it's the mis-messaging that, or the messaging that gets lost in translation when you watch Fight Club or when most people yes. watch Fight Club for the first time and they go, oh, this is really cool. It's about men fighting each other. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's what it's about. Um or even like you said, in, in the there's even the the coolness in in seven because of the twists and and the turns and the goriness of it all and and, the, and yeah. yeah and the goriness of it all. But like you said, this this film's kind of counterculture in its archetype because it gives us this character that's uh, a serial killer in his in mm. his own methodology and and considerate and coldness and and basically just gives us this film that is it's kind of empty of any of that coolness, you know, mm. there's no mysticism really. He just basically goes on the most simple revenge film, um, trajectory. And like you said, there's the ambiguity or basically creating a female character that gets, uh, sodomized and beaten up mm. just to enable the plot. That's, um, not personal as we hear through his internal monologues. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's just business, which makes no sense, but we're also... Well, I think that's just him lying to himself. Yeah. Probably repeatedly. Over. I mean, that all comes out in the, the Tilda Swinton scene, where she basically says that, like, you, there were so many other ways you could have killed me, and you pick, like, the dumbest way, which is, like, to come and meet me face-to-face and have a conversation. So, like, calling him out, essentially, of, okay, well, maybe it is a bit more about ego than it is about, like, the yeah. efficient kill and i i get the whole idea of making a film that's trying to uh call into question the the human ex- experience and perception of something cool yeah I, mean, I think that's why shame kept sort of ringing in my ears as i'm watching it because the whole point of that is that's about a main character who is obsessed with with how they look and sex mm-hmm. and and pleasure and sex to the point where that character goes on a on a downward spiral because of that obsession. But also, yeah. it completely deconstructs what we as the human experience we romanticize the idea of of having a pleasure all of the time. Mm. And the fact is that we can't have that all the time. Or it's a it's actually not something we should be romanticizing because mm. it's actually it's 
you know, it's not that sort of thing. And I think this film's trying to do the same thing just with that idea that we're like, oh, it'd be cool to be an assassin. <laughs> and it's like we watch him mercilessly kill people that are normal. A taxi driver that simply drove people to a location. Yeah. Yeah. Killed for no reason. A secretary that does know of ill deeds, but is simply just trying to have a job and following sort of orders. Yeah. Um, if you look at it from this standpoint, because this was something I didn't think about until a little later as well, is I remember thinking the an- the analog of like the, the Mortal Kombat tower he's climbing of people he has to kill, almost being like, you know, uh, people in the food chain of the film... Uh, you know, cog and machine of like here are the the producers that are controlling him and trying to destroy his career and fighting back. But the other thing as well, this is a man who, yeah, you're right. He thinks he's so cool and has this internal monologue that he thinks he's unreplaceable. And the thing is, he is extremely replaceable. And and that that was almost demonstrated right at the start of the film. As soon as he fails, he's the hits put on him. Yeah. And what he's climbing through is is almost like late stage capitalist. Uh, you know, this conglomerate of just all these faces that are all passing blame onto each other. And, yeah, I thought there was an interesting little connection there as well. I have to ask, because there's an intriguing aspect to this where, at least in the the first point, you know, when we're introduced to Fassbender's house, it's a a castle, basically. He lives in this incredibly wealthy manor in the Dominican Republic. And what I found interesting is, is the film goes on and we meet some of the targets that he he has you know Mm. these hits are conducted where we think large portions of money is being handed over and yet the guy who's conducting the hits is in this kind of dingy office (laughs) not kept behind a massive corporate tower which is quite interesting to me and then on Mm -hmm. top of that we then go and see that the other the other two hits in the film one of them being Tilda Swinton, they're in very normal houses. So it mm. makes you wonder, is there any, is there actually even that much profit in their venture? He's got a wealthy house in the Dominican Republic. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't even think um, about that. You're right, like kind of the locations that they found at. For me, my I guess my assumption, taking it back to that metaphor of not even classism, but just like ranking in this big conglomerate mm. system where he is the lowest one in the food chain and he's the one that's, blowing his money on the visuals. And obviously, like, Tilda Swinton's going to like a gourmet restaurant yes, and true. she's in a nice car. And there are those elements in there. But like like you said, like this big, beautiful, modern mansion that he lives in. And a, and a lot of the people above him are sort of living almost below their own means. I think that's an interesting pickup. Yeah. And I, I think that's almost to do with, yeah, again, someone at the bottom of the food chain having like the most pristine sort of visual for what wealth looks like mm. and how they're using the money they make. Because I, I don't recall if it's clear how much money he's literally making. No, there's the never film. an exact amount, but we assume no. by the sheer, like man, like he's got six storage yes, uh, compartments yep. that have got guns and, and license plates. And yeah, money's not an issue for him. <laughs> I will say one thing I did really like about the film was yep. this exploration into the methodology of an assassin. Mm. Something that doesn't always gets glossed over, but there were little things that I thought, and a lot of them are present in the first 20 minutes, but what I found, it was cool things like the fact that he's, you know, in this little uh, construction um, area and 
he's not just putting the sniper rifle on the window. No, he's got this elevated, like, cement block. Yeah, yeah. To, like, um, make sure he's level with the eye line, which I thought was, like, That's some interesting, interesting detail. There it were is. these little things, or, like, the fact that he changes clothes or he has this whole escape route planned where he switches stuff up and he switches clothing and he'll switch license plates seamlessly mm. and this ability yeah, I mean, the amount of stuff license plates. take a drink every time he either throws something away or <laughs> throws something in a bin like the man just, just like yep done with that done yeah. with that he's a, he's a good thrower or there are little things baseball. like this oh well, i love a- i love when he's like dressing up as like is it, I guess a garbage man or yeah. a, or a delivery man, and he's got he's he's physically drawing the recycle symbol onto was it like a patch on a his patch. yeah yeah and I I love those like procedural thing that's very better console s where you just see ten minutes of someone wordlessly putting something together that you don't quite know what it's being used for yet but it's meant to intrigue you it's the uh, the RFID scanner and he orders it mm. off Amazon yeah and we will yeah. see it on the the motion graphic of, of him ordering it off Amazon. It's like, that's that's kind of cool to mm. look at because despite it's not supposed to be cool, but, as, you know, it's, <laughs> it is, like, really interesting, that method, like, that like that precision, like you said, that almost that Fincher precision where it's, like, um, it's, it's one of my favourite parts of Gone Girl mm. is when Rosamund Pike kills Neil Patrick Harris right. but then thinks of the the methodology of... of being sodomized by him, like being sexually assaulted by him. Right. And it's gritty and uncomfortable, but at the same time, it's kind of like that meticulous planning of how to make the perfect crime, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Is like one of the, one of the, my favorite scenes in Gone Girl, because I'm mm. like, that's just like evil. <laughs> but it's oh, like, she's evil. <laughs> yeah. But no, I, and, and again, I think that's just like with Finch's preciseness and I noticed that as well with the camera work because I think it almost feels like two very different films you got the first 20 minutes you got the before and the after the failed attack because what I noticed straight away as soon as he fails the attack not only does his voiceover become heavily subdued we go we go long stretches of a film without his voiceover once that happens so we kind of get into this more cinema verite thing of just like watching him kind of on the run and, and like you said throwing evidence in garbage cans and things like that but the other thing is the camera work which was so meticulous at that point we even got like the weird window sort of scopophilic stuff mm. as he's observing the streets and the, the windows and things I love the shot of the kid pretending to shoot his mum with the toy gun yeah but it was really interesting but I noticed that after that the camera and I think this must be the first time in several Fincher films that he went handheld for this yeah. stuff and and it really stood out to me because we know so much about his style and the fact that like films like Social Network he would frame everyone very meticulously so he could mask out performances and mix several performances into one shot and so it's almost like him much like the way the character is becoming anxious in this moment he's almost putting himself in this mode where it's going to be a lot harder to fix it in post yeah <laughs> So I thought that was interesting that he he changes that with the camera. It, like I said, there were so many great things he's doing that I'm, I'm recognizing. But I guess, well, let, let's dissect this. Where does this like kind of almost boredom comes? Because I think we both agree that the large large portions of this film, so we like you said, autopilot. I think it's a good way to yeah, it. yeah. I think boring is very yeah, very yeah, harsh word. Yeah, sure. whereas autopilot just feels like. We're going through the motions a little mm. bit, and we have these moments where we're we're kind of shot back into action, 
Um, I think that mostly the kind of that middle portion of the films where it particularly f- kind of dips. Um, but it's interesting because I don't know where it really comes from. Maybe it's the fact that I think the beauty of the first kill, where maybe we're just used to films where they might do something like this. They have this massive methodology scene where, like, they're planning out the the heist or they're planning out the kill. And we go, that's really cool. But then the rest of it is back to the fast, phonetic pace, whereas Mm. this film just goes right back to reset. Target, methodology, kill, like, Mm. or execute. Um, But like I said, in reality, you know, those kills become less eloquent or thought out. They become... Mm as simple as walking into a diner and going, we're going to go outside, I'm going to shoot you. Like, because <laughs> that's all he does. Or when he goes into the Florida house, all he does is give the dog something that puts it to sleep for a little mm. bit yeah. and then walks into the house. Mm. Like, there's no such, like, there's no nuance to it. And like he says... I he guess talks- it's meant to be like a comedic moment when he gets jumped. And it's like, oh, ha like, dumbass. Like, of course you can't just walk in and not be noticed, Yeah, I guess. I think it's interesting because he does say in the the internal monologues that, oh, like, oh, man, I really wish I could go back to just a, a good poisoning or a, or a choke <laughs> out or something like that. But then proceeds to not do any of those things that he claims right. that he's capable of doing. Um, which time wasn't a factor. No one was coming after him again. Like those, they weren't. Both Tilda Swinton and then... Yeah, pretty much all the these bloke. victims, you're right, weren't anticipating... They're not on guard. Yeah. It wasn't like the Bubba Yeager's coming and they're like, <laughs> ooh, he's coming for us. Like, we have to try and stop him. It's, yeah. They were all, like you said, they were all caught off guard. They all knew probably he was coming at some point. But even, I mean, the guy in Florida, the brute, as mm. he's labelled, yeah. um, just thought he was a home invader. Yeah. Didn't, yeah. didn't even think he was... Uh, who he was, only Swinton. There was no him. like personal aspect to that fight scene. No, it's just sort of like, oh, you broke into my house, I'm gonna attack you. Yeah, it's brutal survival. Yeah, I mean, it's a good sequence, it's a good action sequence. It's fun, yeah, and I like the way it's shot. But I think this, it kind of goes back to what you said earlier, where it, you kind of just long stretches of the film, you're just kind of like, I don't really know what the point is. It kind of wish, you know what, this film has some really good things going for it. It feels like almost like the Hitman game in its... Right. Uh, but it wouldn't have been cool if they were more lush or elaborate places that we got to play around in, but had the same sort of phonetic pacing. Mm. Like, I really I really like aspects of this. Like, being like, oh, this is on my route and I need this scanner to decode this thing and, right. and, and planning it out like that is, is really interesting. But at the end of the day, it all cultivates to a conversation in a high-rise apartment. That looks suspiciously like the one at the end of Fight Club. Yeah. <laughs> and the garage as well, the the sort of the parking underground garage thing. When the reality is all it was was, I can get to you. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying the people who hated the ending of The Last of Us Part 2 are definitely going to hate the ending to this as well. <laughs> So, well, all right, I got to you. Bye. But it, but it is that it's that subversion. He is not this big bad villain. He is over like it's one of the f- kind of the he's most- like the customer in this big conglomerate chase that he's been going. Who's just like, oh, Amazon said that this would be free shipping, so I clicked it. 
I had no idea what torment was going to happen to the employees when I when I clicked that. You get a free hit. <laughs> that's so good. I reckon that's kind of on point. It's so true though. <laughs> so many people died to get my to get my new fridge in here on time. Funny. Oh my lord. Um yeah, it like I said, and I kind of feel bad for using those words like bored and sort of like what's the point in that? Um, especially because so many of those procedural, like you said, methodology scenes, like this is what we want more of in films. We want less dialogue, more visual storytelling, things as a sort of entice us. And um, I, 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 yeah. I, I liked it well enough, but mm. there were, I can't see myself going coming back to this film sure i i think it's it's nice to have a change of pace in terms of uh sort of the the quiet voids and like you said the visual storytelling Mm -hmm. but i guess to be honest maybe we live in you know we did a chaplain film Mm. a few weeks ago and it's interesting because we we do that film and we talked about oh it's amazing how he manages to tell stories through no dialogue whatsoever but Mm. it's because they're you know, they're hyperbolized or the visual storytelling is, is yep. dynamic and interesting and compelling still. And I, I do think that there's, there is a place for that minimalist aspect in there. I mean, there are whole sequences in pl- like films like Nomadland where there's mm. not a lot of dialogue and yep. it's solely dependent on the, the meditative visuals of, of what Francis McDermott is, um, McDormand is mm. experiencing in that film. I mean, the last shot is just her walking out to nothing. That's right, yeah. And it's powerful, and it's mm. moving, and it's not about... A film doesn't have to have this definitive end, but where does this character go from here? Is he just... You know, he's basically destroyed this assassin program that he knows because he's destroyed his main... Yeah, yeah, uh, he's sort of rippled through it, and I'm trying to think, so the last scene is them, I guess, just sitting, back at... They're just sitting there just and by the pool, and... I can't remember what the line is. It's very Goodfellas-esque. Something about boring, normal life. I I can't even remember, to be honest. But I guess implying that he's retired or retiring or considering it or... Yeah, I guess he's a schmuck. He's a schmuck now. He's a schmuck. Exactly. He's going to miss the good old days. Even though he had the opportunity to, like you said, do those those kinds of kills and he doesn't. I I guess for me, the takeaway with the killer is... It, it kind of purposely skirts all of the narrative devices that are sort of meant to attach you to the character. Mm-hmm. Like, it completely skirts over the relationship, which in turn makes you sort of forget what the whole point of his mission is, which in turn sort of makes you stop caring about him. And then they do this sort of... I don't want to say half-assed, because, like, there is, there is greatness in subtlety, but... I feel like if they were going to do the parody aspect of it, which in turn just makes mm. him come out as like a bit of a silly, self-egocentric character, that is like, okay, well, I'm definitely not going to like relate to this character or like this character, then maybe the parody aspect of it needed to be way more obvious. Yep, I can believe that. Yeah, I, maybe. I, I think, to be honest, what we're having the biggest problem with and where I reckon the lack of stimulation is coming from is that he's not actually that interesting a person and whether no. that is that uh, satire or that's a deliberate aspect and maybe he thinks himself as being more interesting than that doesn't make for compelling 
we don't really get his character fueled by any aspects. The mm. fact that he, like you said, we get shotgunned into this narrative basically yeah. post the epilogue, uh, prologue, is kind of reflective of the fact that yeah, there there isn't that much. He then goes on to talk about kind of arbitrary things that occur in the world, but there's no philosophy, there's no ethos into his ideology. You know, you take the relationship Norton has with Brad Pitt. Mm. There's a lot of philosophical, deluded philosophical beliefs, but still they're there. And that makes the characters flawed, but also interesting and compelling to watch. I mean, there's whole scenes of all in in Fight Club of just Norton scanning a room and making arbitrary, boring comments. So why do we find that intriguing? I think because the characters, like you said, regardless of our beliefs, of their beliefs, or, or, you know, how... Whatever word you want to use to associate with with the Fight Club characters, the characters themselves believe in what they're saying. Yeah. And the killer in this film, he might believe what he's saying, but the film is making it very obvious that he's being hypocritical and doesn't actually... The things he believes and he does not do what he says or he mm. does not behave as he thinks. And I, and that, that's again again with the 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 sloppy operation the way he goes about certain things and and like the fact that he's going on and on about you know there's no morals i i serve no flag and i'm like yeah but like choosing to not have beliefs in the in the the let me start again this idea that he doesn't have these beliefs he doesn't judge people if i'm paid to do a job then i'll just do it you know i'm not going to sit here and does does this person deserve to do, deserve to die or not but it's like, but that now the choice is just money, and it's like, is that not the most boring, obvious sort of flag you can align mm. yourself with? Is just money. So I think in that, in of itself, is like he thinks he's cool, but the the one step removed is like, oh well, you ha- that almost makes you uncool by having no allegiance. Yeah, <laughs> and the reality is it's interesting because Tilda Swinton gets the moment to call his character's flaws into question a mm. little bit, but it's so brief and small that yeah. it doesn't resonate nearly as much. And then it makes the fact that she's not even the last person he he goes after. Sure, yeah. By the time we get to guy who ordered thing off Amazon with free shipping, <laughs> there's there's no we're not challenging his philosophy anymore. There's no there's no polarizing viewpoints mm. or anything. The only time we get uh, a conversation where they have those viewpoints is when he has the conversation with his brother in the first uh, brother-in-law or yeah, the or the the brother the brother of the girl, uh, yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> what it's it, it's a film. It's <laughs> it's a film. No, I get what you mean. I do understand that like you would kind of want that the final step in the the breaking down of his character philosophy to be the final, like, his final target to be the one to call him out on that. And it, I understand within the context of the story where the guy doesn't really know who he is and doesn't really remember what all these numbers he's throwing in. I understand contextually it doesn't make sense for him to be the one to call him out. Well, but, but even Tilda Swinton doesn't really explore the intricacies of hurting that girl. Like, they mentioned, mm. oh, I didn't want... I didn't want that to happen. He's a yeah, brute and passing and blame. And, but yeah. it felt like that in that because she had such a short period of time. It was like, oh, let's brush over the fact that this guy's uh, assassin corporation's fallen apart because you've killed him, and mm. and oh, I didn't mean that to happen to the girl. 
because then it becomes more about the philosophy of her death and the fact that what she like her legacy aspect and i'm like at that point i'm like that's interesting but Mm. we need to start to explore the like you said the emotional aspect because that's the thing that contradicts everything he's saying he clearly has an emotion emotive relationship with this girl Mm. despite internally denying it and outwardly projecting that well shouldn't we be pressing his buttons more to get that emotion Mm. out to see that that seething and that writhing and and then that makes the the moment when he meets the guy at the end the opposite because he would have come in there charged with emotion only to find out that there's nothing there's the this guy yeah no i know exactly what you mean and it's because the film needs to be cold and calculated the whole way through yeah so, no, I do get that. And it's a shame because I still think that Tilda Swinton scene is my highlight scene. Yeah, it's probably mine too. And <laughs> not even the opening? Oh, the opening is really good. And the opening, and even just the sequence of the... I love the cinematography in it. The looking down, the scope shots. There's so much yeah, artistry. It's literally scopophilic. Yeah. <laughs> <It's true>. <laughs> <laughs> oh. God, you no, knew that no. that girl was gonna get blasted. I know she was asking for it, and just the sheer <laughs> demolishment, the blood package, just like yeah, that was that's very no other director than Fincher is gonna do the exaggerated like uh, the muzzle flash from the sniper and then the the blood splatter on the guy's had face like a and... cod slow mo aspect. <laughs> <of it. laughs> sniper Elite, where it follows the bullet all the way down. That'd be so funny. Fatality. Yeah, no, but um. I will say, I do like the Tilda Swinton, like, the bear speech or the bear analogy she keeps referring to, um, where it's, like, he's so determined to kill this bear, even though they've already had this sort of, like, one-on-one meeting of the minds where it's, like, all right, well, you failed, and, and I could either let you go or kill you now. And um, I did like all that. But in a weird, weird, twisted way, Zeke, it actually reminded me a bit of the, the scene in Ed Wood where he meets Orson Welles. <laughs> <laughs> In a really weird, I don't know why type way, it just reminded me of that scene. Because the context, I guess the context, because I was thinking of the, the, is David Fincher meeting like some sort of hero, like film hero in, in his version of the story? Mm. And is that what Orson Welles is to Edward? And there was a little bit of that in then. I did rewatch that scene in Edward. And I was like, I don't know why. The, the conversation is nothing. To, <laughs> it's not even remotely similar, but... I haven't seen Edward since high school. Really? It's so long since I've seen yeah. Edward. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. You know, and, uh, not to be too tangential, but mm. we did... We watched... The whole thing was comparing... Com- and we're actually doing... Oh, my God, I could do this again. Um, commercial. <laughs> you just had a realisation. I could do this in high school. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. It was comparing commercial to non-commercial films. So we watched oh. Edward... And we watched Plan 9 from Outer Space. Nice. And now that I think about that, that is brilliant. That is brilliant. Like. Wish I got that, yeah. Oh, that's so smart. <laughs> Six flashing back to his childhood. My God. But I um, have I have one Edward film. My uncle, who's, who's since passed away, um, we got his DVD collection. And he has a random ass Edward DVD that's just sitting on the bench over there. It's not, it's not that one, but it's. Sorry, he's not my uncle. He's my cousin. I should clarify. The killer is currently out on Netflix right now. The, the, the one and only Netflix. Yeah. They took that. I checked because I was like, "Is this still in cinemas?" And they took it. They took it straight down. There you go. Not in cinemas. Speaking of Netflix, so Jake and cinemas. What's new to Netflix streaming services? 
and cinemas near us. Well, they're already celebrating Christmas over on Netflix for some reason. I don't know why. Time for that Hallmark film, baby. That's it. Best Christmas ever sees Jackie, as she does every year, send a boastful holiday newsletter to make her old college friend Charlotte feel like a lump of coal. But this year, Zeke, Charlotte will attempt to prove that her friend's life isn't so perfect after all. That's right, bitch. <laughs> Take it down. <laughs> Got to get them Hallmark films in. I know. I was just thinking, I was like, is that clever? Is that... It's, it's nothing, really. It's, it's just a, kind of a nothing film. Yeah, I don't know. Well, thankfully, we've got a few other things coming to Netflix this week, including the sixth, or sorry, the first half of the sixth and final season of The Crown. Very exciting. There you go. And uh, I think the rest of the series releases like, in a couple of weeks. So there's only a few weeks between part one and two of season six. Mm. So that's good. Um, I do want to watch it. I really do. I wonder if uh, Queen Lizzie up there is watching it. <laughs> I reckon. She's watching the she, early she cuts. Denied, she denied watching it in real life, mm. in life, but maybe in death. She's in death, it. she's watching it, exactly. I don't, I'm not completely up to date. I know, like, Elizabeth Debecky and that's in it and this and that. Is it? Is it going to end with Princess Diana's death? I'd is, assume so. Is it, I feel like that's how it's tracking. I'm not too sure, but... I personally have never seen an episode of The Crown. Fair enough. I've seen clips of it, and it looks awesome. Yeah. Looks great, but I do need to get into that. Finally, coming to Netflix, we also have the full season drop of the animated Scott Pilgrim Takes Off series, which sees the entire cast from the Edgar Wright live-action film reprise their roles. That's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it annoys me that it's just a full season drop. I hate yeah. it. Yeah. I hate the That's Netflix so, model. It's so Netflix, it. yeah. Like, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying this weekly... The well, I enjoy that Disney does it, but Amazon does it too with Invincible season two. Mm. It's been really nice watching one episode and being able to talk about each episode yep. in isolation. Isolation. You yeah. can't do that with the Netflix model. No, people don't do it. It's just a shame because I feel like we have talked about this where it, it almost it makes sense for a show, say like Loki season two. It's an established show. Disney. Pretty confident people are going to watch it. I mean, who knows? I mean, the Marvels is completely tanking at the box office this weekend. <laughs> She's so happy. Uh, I like. Lo- it sounded like you were wearing a cowboy jacket with that. Yeah. Burn. <laughs> Burn it to the ground. Burn the MCU. Um, but you know, it's all like uh, say Squid Game season two. That's going to be gigantic. It makes sense for those kinds of shows to have the weekly drops, it- it extend the retention rate of the shows and how it's been talked about. Um. And that they would just sort of drop shows that they're not sure about that really only have a chance of becoming watercolor sh- shows by having the whole season mm. out there and people being like, oh, you got to catch up, you got to catch up, you got to catch up. But, no, I'm with you. And, like, the Scott Pilgrim thing, it's like, well, it's a very popular film. It, I mean, you, the that cast, it's a crazy cast. And yeah. they're all back, all of them. So that's, that alone should be enough to entice people to watch the first episode be like, oh, I want to watch the next one. It comes. I don't know how short they are. To be fair, they could be like fifteen minute episodes. Yeah, that that could be the uh, saving grace for why this one's put together. But they do it. They drop yeah. full seasons. And it's yeah. just silly. It's annoying. It is what it is, though. Coming to Disney Plus, we have the Lady Bird Diaries, which is a documentary that follows one of the most influential and least understood first ladies in history using her own audio diaries. And coming to cinemas, you mentioned this film earlier, Zeke. Very exciting. The Hunger Games. 
The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes is a prequel to the last decade's epic dystopian fantasy series and focuses on a young pre-President Snow as he develops feelings for the female District 12 tribute during the 10th ever Hunger Games. Wow, what a write-up. Um, I'm kind of excited for this. I kind yeah, of want to see I it. do not. Um, I like the first Hunger Games. Yeah. I don't even mind the second one. But the third and the fourth one, no, no bueno. The Mockingjay ones. I was the... when I because I read them. I when I read Mockingjay, I think I watched the first two, and then I read all the books. And then when I watched Mockingjay one and two, I, I already knew how the story was going to play out. Um, I was as sick as I could ever remember being when reading that book, and I think that heavily skewed my opinion on it. Maybe mm. because even the movies, I was like, I do not like this last century at all. Maybe it just does suck. It's a bit clunky. Okay. I mean, I think that I think that the first those two once again splitting it into two parts just was a capitalistic mm. sort of idea. Yeah, and I think pretty um, much everyone involved in that those films have just like, yeah, we regretted doing that. It should have just been one film. Um, because yeah, I think the first film is is a really good, great example of how you can do a PG thirteen film with such a heavy theme, right? And it's such a tight ninety. Like it's okay, yeah. and it's so well paced. Um, I love the first film. I think the first mm. film's great, and the second one's fine. The second one's fine. Um, I know a lot of people who like the second one the most, which I'm trying. The to second think one's why. got a lot going for it because it deals with the PTSD of the first one, and I actually okay. think that that's and obviously has that whole Katniss Peter the t- bonding dynamic. through suffering, suffering, which yep. is cool. I, I I do like the films. Um, it's so funny what they spawned because mm. I, I liked the Maze Runner concept and that fell flat on its face. Oh, okay. And, yep. um, and then, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Divergent. Oh, other, okay. The, the, the Virgin ones, yeah. Did they even finish that? Yeah. Oh, okay. You wouldn't know. There's another one. <laughs> yeah. There's another series, like a fantasy series that they just never finished. That was the one where it was like in colour. Like it was like black and white and then they found colour. I know which one you're talking about. Oh, that's what I was thinking about. It's got Jeff Bridges like, in it. I feel like I can get this. Is it Lion Gate? Was it a Lion Gate thing? Not hundred percent sure. No. Oh, the was it Divergent? No, that no. was. They were finished. I think it was the oh, Giver. Okay. Oh, something okay. like that. Yeah, I'm not too sure. Um, but yeah, look, I'm I'm intrigued well enough. I mean, if someone asked me to go to the cinemas with them to watch this, I would go. I'd be like, hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's got Pete Dinklage in it. Oh, that's true. Can't go wrong with a bit of Petey Dinks. Petey <laughs> Dinky. <laughs> that sounds so mean. Peter Dinklage. <laughs> it does sound really mean. Fair enough. He's owed a full name reading. That that I'll, yes. I'll give him that. Uh, all right, this week we also got Saltburn, which is Emerald Fennell's latest film. So he's a struggling Oxford student, played by Barry Keegan, find himself drawn into the world of the charming and aristocratic Felix, played by Jacob Elordi. Of a euphoria fame, of course. Um, he's also in the Presley film coming up. He plays Elvis Presley. It's Pre- oh my god, I called it Presley. Priscilla. Jesus Christ. Mm. It's because I'm a manzy. That's why I said that. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that right. film's really good. Yeah, I'm keen. Go. I'm really keen. I'm so keen. Miss Coppola back at it. Um, yeah, I'm really intrigued by Saltburn. I mean, Jesse talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Or, sorry, excuse me, last week on the show. Yes. Um, and I, I rec- he liked it a lot. I think it was a little overly long. Um, and I think that he was saying the tone's a little off. Was, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But I am very curious. It seems like a very wildly different film from Promising Young Woman, so... Certainly does. I will, uh, you know, props for that, I suppose. But yeah, it's up. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see where it goes. Uh, Thanksgiving sees a Black Friday riot. In- I love how we're getting Bla- Thanksgiving and Christmas in the same week. <laughs> New releases. It sees a Black Friday riot end in tragedy and a mysterious Thanksgiving-inspired killer terrorize the people of Massachusetts. It's a... It's a horror film it's on top of it. a horror film, yes. There you go. Uh, probably Blumhouse. Who, who knows? Uh, the Tasting sees Bernard uh, Campen play a recently divorced and small wine shop owner on the verge of bankruptcy. And Isabella Carey plays a woman afraid of ending up single, walk into his store one day and decide to sign up for a tasting workshop. Seems. It's Sideways, part two. <laughs> that came up in my frames the other day, Sideways. Great film. I think it did have at the bottom that his new film, The Holdovers, was like it was like a sponsorship thing, uh, and then I it took me like three days to realize like oh all of them are his films, Descendants, Sideways, yes. yeah, um, Nebraska was in there as well. I yeah. I think Alexander Payne has had more hits than misses. So. That's true. That's true. And hey, that's a good point. They didn't have a they, they didn't have downsizing on their list. So. Exactly. <laughs> Even framed were on top of that. And finally, playing exclusively at Palace, uh, Winter Boy, or sorry, two films, including Winter Boy, in which a high school student struggles to cope with the recently maybe, maybe not suicide of his father, and Bromley Light After Dark, a documentary on the Australian artist David Bromley. Oh, cool. So, yeah, that first one seems interesting. Yeah, it does. A little After Sun-esque. Very intriguing. Yeah, interesting, but... uh. I don't think we're doing any of those films next week, Steve. No, we are certainly not. <laughs> but, Jake, what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke. Oh, I'm excited for this one. What are we doing? The Third Man. Is Mr. Martins engaged on our new book? Yes. It's a murder story. It's based on fact. It's called The Third Man. Heard of Harry Lyme? Best friend I ever had. So you're going to find me the real criminal. Sounds like one of your stories. You never should have gone to the police, you know. Come out, come out, whoever you are. Novelist Holly arrives in Vienna at the invitation of his friend, Harry. Is it his? Holly's a guy? Yeah, Holly oh. Martin. Ah, oh, cool. Only to learn that Harry has died. Unable to accept the inconsistent stories surrounding his death, he decides to probe the case. Oh, I think this is... Look, to be honest, we're on the, the home stretch of this, this show, and, and this has been a film that... Uh, well, speaking of high school, it was a film that I first watched in high school. Oh, it's part really? of ATAR Media. Nice. Um, 
and I reckon this is, I reckon this is definitely the my favorite film from the forties, mm. and I would argue the best film from the forties. Ooh, even um, more than a Citizen, Citizen Kane. Kane, of and course. Casablanca. Of course, he's in this film as well. And double and identity. All really good films. <laughs> all really, really good films. Yes. Um, well, I'm looking at this list. So, is like, I've pulled up your letterbox here. I've arranged every film you've ever seen. Although, you, what what was it that we noticed earlier you hadn't logged yet? 21 grams. Yes, you got to go back and log 21 grams. Um, ooh, tiny little hint of what <gasps> we might be doing in the future. Ooh, see if people can work that out. Um, and every single film that you've given a five-star review, with the exception of A Charlie Brown Christmas, mm-hmm. which I don't think is a feature film, no. we have covered every single one of these except for The Third Man. And I recall saying, like, year one of this podcast that we need to do The Third Man. Yeah, it just um, was put in a couple of countdown through the decades. Didn't mm. get chosen. Um, but I think this film has so many things going for it, um, time, which we'll dive into later. Obviously, it's technically a film directed by Carol Reed, but there is yes. a lot of controversy behind uh, how much Him and influence Orson. Orson had on yeah, this film. Interesting. And it, yeah, definitely remember his name more than... Actually, when I was writing the document earlier, I actually did remember... I was like, oh, yeah, Carol Reed. I was a little surprised mm. at myself for remembering that that was the director. Yeah. And it's kind of a... I think it's a hint even for who steals the show in the actual film mm. itself, too. That's it. Zeke, do you want me to quickly read every single film you've given a five-star rating and confirm we actually have legitimately done all of them on the podcast? Yep, let's do it. All right. Amadeus. Yes. Boogie Nights. Yes. Yes. Uh, Before Sunset. Yes. Before Sunrise. Yes. The Shawshank Redemption. Yep. Once. Yes. The Father. Yes. Wow. Blind Spotting. You can't, I can't believe you gave Blind Spotting five stars. Oh, it's brilliant. It deserves it. Yeah, fair enough. Almost Famous. Absolutely. Citizen Kane. If there Kane. was a 5.25, I would give it Almost Famous 5.25. <laughs> fair enough. Um, yes, Citizen Kane. The Last Waltz. Give that 5.5. <laughs> the Sting. Oh, I'd probably give that. I'd probably say 5. <laughs> there Will Be Blood. Yeah. Yeah. When Harry Met Sally. I was like 6. <laughs> <laughs> Once Upon a Time in the West. It's like 20. <laughs> yeah. Goodfellas. Yep. Very recently covered. And No Country for Old Men. Jeez, what a list. That is a pretty great list. Although... I'm going to have to double check on Boogie Nights. Maybe we haven't done Boogie Nights. We've definitely talked about it. We we have talked about it. I'm actually... Ooh, you know what? I don't think we have done those. There you go. It's all but one. Oh, damn. That's okay. Do we reevaluate our list, Seek? Nah, because we've done, we've done a lot of PTA. We have. We've we done have. a lot of we've PTA. Done, we've done um, uh, Licorice Pizza. See, all, blood, I make fun of Mark Wahlberg a love. lot, but Mark Wahlberg's in a five-star film for me, so there you go. There you go. <laughs> he wins, ultimately. He Zeke. technically wins. <laughs> he technically wins with his <laughs> magical... Uh, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> <laughs> His magical parts. Um, oh, until then, thank I you for joining it. us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Carol Reed's The Third Man. <laughs>